welcome to the Cultivate Podcast. I'm Charlie Lofton, the past lead pastor there, and really glad that you're joining us. And you've caught us in the middle of a series where we are working our way through kind of a chronology of the Bible. It's based on some material called Panorama of the Bible. This material was put together by Robert Cup at Fellowship Northwest Arkansas. It's been around at least 30 years. First time I was exposed to it is incredible material that just kind of helps us understand kind of how the Bible fits together. Sometimes we, it, it just can feel disjointed or we don't understand kind of what's happening where, but there really is kind of a very simple chronological flow that we can follow to kind of understand beginning to end kind of what the, what the story here is, what God's doing, kind of where this fits in history. And so what you've noticed, again, this is episode nine. If you haven't heard the other ones, I encourage you to go back and listen to the first eight and then come back to us here. But if you have been listening, you'll notice that we kind of review a little bit kind of all the other ones before we get here. That I guess that is in, uh, in part a, a teaching method to kind of just continue to help these things kind of repeat them enough that maybe it can really just kind of sink in the way uh, kind of kind of these different sections of the Bible. And so it starts with the prologue, Genesis 1 through 11, where we kind of get the story of creation. We get the story of Noah. We get the story of Tower of Babel. It's kind of the intro to the whole story. We get intro to who God is, who his people are, and kind of this big picture problem of what is God going to do with the people who sin and rebel against him? So it kind of intros the story. Then in Genesis chapter 12 with the uh, patriarchs, we get introduced to Abraham, who was called by God. And God says, I'm going to create a tribe for myself, and I'm going to bless this tribe so everybody can know who I am. And ultimately, this tribe is going to bless the whole world. Abraham passes it on to his son, Isaac. Isaac has uh, twins, Jacob and Esau, gets passed to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, including Joseph, and they become the heads of the 12, become the 12 tribes of Israel. And really kind of the, the, the foundation of the nation of Israel, as it's known in the Old Testament, begins right there. Through a weird set of circumstances, Joseph finds himself in slavery, sold there by his brothers, but ends up second in command in Egypt. And ultimately, through God's blessing in his life, is able to save Egypt and really kind of that whole region, including his family, from a famine. But in part of that, his family ends up moving there to Egypt to be with Joseph. And ultimately, after a generation or so, end up enslaved, which gets us to the section three, redemption and wanderings. They find themselves, the Israelites, enslaved, and God raises up Moses to get Pharaoh to let his people go and go back to the land that God's promised them. So you have the story of that, the 10 plagues, they're coming out, parting of the Red Sea, the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai, and they get all the way to the promised land, but get afraid and don't, um, don't trust that God will give them that land. So God judges them where they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years to see if the next generation will be faithful. We get just to part four, conquest in the book of Joshua, where Joshua is leads the people and, and faithfully to go back and take the land that God has given them. And so they take that land in the book of Joshua, and we get to the next section five, uh, the judges cycle that we see um, all throughout the book of Judges where they're following God, they turn against him, start worshiping idols. God raises up some outside group to judge them, to conquer them. They repent, and then God raises up someone to restore them, one of these judges. We see this cycle all throughout the book. But they are not governed by any particular monarch or anything. They're really ruled by God, and God has these appointed judges and prophets that kind of 
oversee, but they eventually want to have a king like every other country does. And the prophet doesn't really want them to have that. God, you know, God doesn't want that for them either, but ultimately concedes and allows them to have this. And they become a united kingdom. Number that is section number six. And there are three kings of a united kingdom in Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And now we're to the books of first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, first and second Samuel uh, is kind of bridges the gap there. All of the poetic books were kind of written during this time. Saul's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They're all during this time. But after Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, he becomes the next king. But because of just some really stupidity and just arrogance on his part, the kingdom is split in two almost immediately after he becomes king. Jeroboam, um, a military leader under Solomon, becomes king in the north. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son becomes king in the south. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. So that in the part number seven, the divided monarchy, you've got the kingdom of Israel in the north. It's several kings there. None of them were good kings. None of them were faithful to God. And then Judah, we have a mixed bag. Some kings that are trying to follow God and some that aren't. And after a period of time, after about 200-ish years, in 722 B.C., the, Israel, the kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and they are taken away and enslaved up there. Some people, a remnant remains, they intermarry with the Assyrians and the kingdom of Israel is essentially gone for good. About 150 years later or so, 586 BC, the kingdom of Babylon comes and conquers the southern kingdom of Judah. They take the leaders and the best and the brightest there back to Babylon really to try to culturally assimilate them and re-educate them into becoming Babylonians and forget their heritage. And we learned about Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who kind of stand strong against that to remain, keep their faithfulness to um, their ethnicity, their culture, and ultimately to God. And we see this faithfulness, this promise that God has that he will maintain this remnant, even in this exile, even in this kind of extended period of judgment we see God's faithfulness to um, make sure that his name and his people will remain strong. And so that happens in 586 BC, and the length of the exile is about 70 years. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's some, obviously a lot of power in the, in the Old Testament around the number seven, kind of the the seven days of the week, the, the the seventh year is meant to be a Sabbath year. And there really is just kind of this, this, this theme and some of the literature there in the Old Testament about this just kind of being a time of rest for the land. But God is holding on to this remnant outside of um outside of Israel. And 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 ultimately these kings become more and more favorable to the Jewish people. And ultimately, um uh, during during the during the Persian rule, a king named Darius allows the people to allows the people to return, and so the two historical books here that are going to help us um, understand. So if we're going through the the history books, we got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then we get the Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah really kind of deal with this and Esther kind of deal with this 
return from exile period. So in the book of Ezra, we're going to, we're going to see the story where King, King, King Cyrus allows Zerubbabel to go back to Israel and to rebuild, rebuild the people, to, re, to rebuild the people, to rebuild the temple of God. And so he sends Zerubbabel back with, with the intent of them being able to rebuild their temple so they can begin to worship God in the way that they were supposed to. Now, this would be normally very offensive and, and would not be something that a, another king would want to do because what comes with a, a people who have their own God and every country, every tribe, whatever, would have their own God. If you are allowing a people group to go back and rebuild their temple um, to their God, then ultimately what they're doing, this is just the beginning of their, the restoration of their national and ethnic identity. And with the restoration of their national and eth- ethnic identity, theoretically would come from that a, a desire to rebuild as a nation and ultimately to overthrow the people who are conquering them. And so it was really unusual that it would allow, that they would allow um, a people to do this. But it really, again, it just shows the favor of, that, of God, that God has for his people in moving the heart of Cyrus to do this, and really the favor that God's people had obviously achieved in the hearts and the minds of, of, of King Cyrus. We have these key figures here in this story, the first one being Zerubbabel, who was tasked by Cyrus to rebuild the temple. And then along with that, um, we, will, we, we learn about, in the book of Ezra, we learn about Ezra himself. And Ezra is a prophet. And Ezra really is, he, he is this prophet priest person who really is tasked by God, not with the rebuilding of the temple or anything physical construction, but is tasked with the rebuilding of the people of God. It, it, is, it is his job to put back in them the practices and the faith and the connection that they are supposed to have with God. So in the book of Ezra, we've kind of got these two guys who are doing work simultaneously as they are being as they are returning from exile we've got one who is doing a physical rebuilding and you also have Ezra who is doing a spiritual rebuilding of God's people and then you fast forward a little bit not only in the bible but in history and you get to another persian king a guy named Artaxerxes and with Artaxerxes we we learn about a guy named Nehemiah so in Ezra during the time of Darius is the first time that people are allowed to come back and rebuild anything in Israel. We fast forward a little bit to the time of Artaxerxes, and we meet a guy named Nehemiah, who's a Jewish person who is the cupbearer to the king. And this cupbearer to the king is, you know, that's not just, I mean, obviously that is the, uh, and it's not, a, it's, not, it's, not the, it's not the greatest job in the world. I mean, you're the, like, hey, I want to make sure that this, this drink's not poison, so I'm going to drink it first. But even though it has, you know, uh, a lot of danger, shall we say, in the job itself. It actually is a job of, of great prestige because it shows that the, the king is going to have a lot of trust in this person. And so Nehemiah has worked himself up to, to being a part in, inside the court of Artaxerxes, where he certainly has a measure of favor with the king of Persia. And there comes this moment in this story that we read in Nehemiah where Nehemiah just get really brokenhearted and sad and Artaxerxes is like, hey, man, what's up? Which is not a great thing to do. You don't, you're not sad in front of the Persian king. Persian kings, by and large, 
viewed themselves as close to deity anyway. And you don't cry when you're in the presence of God. But here he is, he's kind of brokenhearted and Artaxerxes, rather than rebuking him or hurting him in some way, is actually kind of concerned. He's really concerned for him. He's like, man, I can tell, man, you say everything's okay. It's not okay, man. This is like, you seem soul level hurt. And Nehemiah essentially says, hey, you know what? I mean, uh, I'm heartbroken because here I am hanging out with the king, but my people live in, in kind of, they live in rubble. And the king is like, man, what do you want? He's like, I want to rebuild the walls of my city. And he's like, man, you just go right ahead and do it. And I'm going to send you with letters so that you can get, you can get wood that you need. You can do whatever you need to kind of rebuild the walls of your city. Now, if it was risky for Cyrus to allow Zerubbabel and Ezra to go back and rebuild the temple of God in order to kind of reestablish their national identity, how much more so is it scary? I guess, I mean, just kind of, um, dumb, not strategic to allow a, a people who are conquered, who's essentially their, their kingdom has been wiped out, their cities in shamble, and they're going to go rebuild the capital city and what they're going to rebuild, the, what they're going to focus on in rebuilding their capital, their former capital city is the defensive measures. Again, it just shows how God's hand was in this that would make the king make by and large, what would be considered a very unstrategic decision and the favor that Nehemiah and the Jewish people had with King Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah is an incredible book. I encourage you to, to read it. And now when you read it, you can put it in some measure of context. So it used to be a united monarchy. Then it got split into two, the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom got wiped out. We never heard from them again. The Southern Kingdom got wiped out by Babylon. The Babylonians got taken over by the Persians. Persians looked a little more favorably on the Jewish people and allowed them to come back. And Zerubbabel started to rebuild the temple. Ezra was kind of acting as this kind of national priest. And then ultimately, Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go down and rebuild the wall. So we find ourselves in the end, the return from exile, the post-exile, or the, the thing that post-exilic, that was the phrase that they always use in seminary. You can sound smart by saying post-exilic if you'd like. Um, we got this, and, and so we find ourselves... So I guess what I'm saying is you should read the book of Nehemiah. It's an incredible story. There's a lot of leadership principles that you can learn from Nehemiah as he kind of overcomes a lot of obstacles, as he's motivating people, as he's staying faithful to his mission. Nehemiah is an incredible guy with an incredible vision, incredible heart. And we see God just do some really cool things in and through him as he is rebuilding the wall. Now, we also have during this, we have, we have, um, the book of Esther, the book of Esther happens in this, this um, post-exile time. And now our, our king is a king named Xerxes and not Artaxerxes. We talked about with Nehemiah, but Xerxes. And again, this is somebody that we have, we should have some, some measure of familiarity with if we've ever studied, you know, this, this period in history, or if you have ever seen the movie 300, right? That's not a reference. That's not a reference. I mean, come on, this is a, this is a Bible podcasts at a church and you're referencing the movie 300. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not recommending the, the movie 300 per se, but uh, I am reverent that, that, that is, you know, this is this, this, that guy. And like, if you think, if you've seen that movie, he's like, that dude's way creepy. Right. And he's like, and again, you can, you remember from that. And we talked about this again, when we talked about Artaxerxes, I mean, these Persian Kings believed that they were deity and you see that just, I don't know if lampooned is the right word, but certainly highly, it's certainly exaggerated 
form of that there in that movie where like, you've got this guy who thinks that he is, he, he believes that he is God walking on, on the earth. And so you got this story with Esther and they're a uh, really interesting thing. I mean, he, he, he banishes his queen and through just a, uh, just an, both an awful story, a God redeeming cool things through the awfulness. Esther becomes the queen and ultimately uncovers a plot to destroy the Jewish people that then she is able to um, put down because of her connection with King Xerxes. Again, it is, it is a powerful story of a strong woman who is having to do or endure a lot of bad things in order to see God do something really cool in her life. So those are your three main history books that cover this period, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Your three, your three key characters, Zerubbabel who builds the wall, Ezra who builds the people, and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel temple, Ezra the people, and Nehemiah with the wall. And then we get the bonus story of Esther and how she is able to save God's people. Now, in between, like, so, the, so then the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, one of the prophets, also is during this time period. And during this time period, we're starting to see even already, you know, they, they've, been, they've, been, they've been conquered, they've been exiled, they've been away from their land for 70 years. God maintains this remnant. He blesses them. He brings them back, restores the people, restores the temple, restores the wall. God does all these things and, and still very, way too soon. We see the unfaithfulness of the people coming back. And then we kind of get there some pretty strong warnings in the, at the end of the book of Malachi, which then leads us to a 400-year historical gap between the post-exilic period and the birth of Jesus. These are very often referred to as the 400 silent years because of the, because of the gap there in what we have in Scripture. There was a belief, there was a belief that Malachi was going to be the last prophet until Elijah came back and Elijah coming back was going to signal the, the coming of the Messiah. And when John the Baptist is asked, Hey, are you Elijah? Cause if you're saying you're a prophet, then clearly you think that you're Elijah. And he was like, no, I'm not Elijah. And he took that in a very literal sense. But then Jesus, when asked about it says, absolutely. John the Baptist was Elijah in the sense that you mean it. He is, he has come in the spirit and the likeness of Elijah and he has come to play that role, which is to introduce me into who I am. But during that time of 400 silent years, I mean, it's not like the, the, the Jewish people didn't exist or there weren't even religious writings during that time. And the Catholic Church, you may or may not know this, the Catholic Church has a version of the Bible that has extra books in it. And those extra books are often referred to as the Apocrypha, which has the word hidden, and which is what that means. And so really kind of these, there's a lot of different ways to talk about it. I don't want to sound like I'm being anti-Catholic or anti-Apocrypha or anything. I don't believe that those things are on the same level. They're not scripture, but they're perfectly good books and, they're, and, and they have some historical merit to them to help us understand what is going on during this time. And so, you know, as, as you describe what's going on during that 400, 400 years, you've got the Babylonians right? They're in the exile and then the Persians during the exile, and they're the ones that allow the people to come home. And they, 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 their heyday lasted about 200 or so years. And then the Greeks came and conquered them. And there, they were around for about 150 years or so. And now here's something you may, you, you may know this word, especially if you have any familiarity at all with the, with the Catholic Apocrypha. 
The Maccabees, which were a family, a kind of a tribe of sorts during this period of time, had conquered, you know, overcame the Greeks and, and had a measure of independence for about a hundred years or so. And so the Maccabees were the ones that were kind of, you know, who, who led the rebellion and, and held this independence for about a hundred years. So you may know their names because some of the books in this apocrypha, the historical books are referred to first Maccabees, second Maccabees thing. So that was from about 167 BC to about 63 BC. So about a hundred years there, the Maccabeans had a bit of self-rule there in Israel. And then around 63 BC is when the Romans come and reclaim and, and conquer Israel again. And this leads us all the way up to the point in time that we have probably a little bit more familiarity with as we are people who typically sud- read, read and study the, the New Testament way more than we do the Old Testament. So we get all the way to the time of Jesus, 63 BC, all the way up to the time of Jesus and beyond a little bit to approximately 70 AD for Israel is when the Romans are ruling Israel, which is the situation that Jesus finds himself born into uh, at approximately two to four BC. You think, no, bro, it's at like year one, right? When we did the best, they did the best that they could to kind of pinpoint the time, but it's probably a little bit before year one. It's probably somewhere between two and four BC when, when Jesus was born. And so we have those 400 silent years. We go again from the Persians to the Greeks to a period of independence to the Romans, and that's going to get us all the way to the New Testament. So again, quick timeline here. They, God calls Abraham. They've got the land. They enslaved in Egypt. Moses gets them out. They rebel. Joshua brings them back. They take their land. They're ruled by God for a season. Then God gives them a king. They have three kings. During a united monarchy, it gets divided, split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom gets wiped out by the Assyrians and they never come back. The southern kingdom gets conquered by the Babylonians. They're taken into exile. And after about 70 years, the Persians take over the Babylonians. And the Persians allow the uh, Jewish people to have not a measure of independence, but at least a measure of cultural identity. And as they're brought back, they're able to rebuild their temple they're able to rebuild the people and reestablish their faith and their connection with God. And ultimately through Nehemiah are able to rebuild the wall. We see the really cool story of how God's hand with them is still going in this period as Esther is able to save them essentially from genocide um, during the time of Xerxes. And then the Persians are taken by the Greeks. The uh, Maccabees give them a little bit of independence for about a hundred years. And then the Romans take us, take over. And that leads us all the way to the New Testament, which will be session 10, which you can join us for next time. Again, it is great walking you through this. I hope that the Bible is just becoming a little less fuzzy for you, being able to put it together, just kind of the the big picture and how all the different pieces and where all these different stories fit in. Encourage you to go back and listen to the ones you haven't, or maybe re-listen to some of them until really this can kind of really sink in and we can fully understand. Hey, really, again, thanks for joining us. And we would love to see you at The Grove sometime. If you're not a part of The Grove, you can go to thegrovechurch.org slash connect. Get all the information you need and you can come visit us any Sunday. We'd love to meet you. And if you're not local, you can still go to that same spot, grovechurch.org slash connect. We stream our second service and anything we can do to help you, serve you, we'd love to know it. Again, I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there. And thanks for joining us.